Hello, hello. Guys, if you want to come on in and make your way and grab a seat. Thank you so much for coming here and being with us. Uh, my name is Hannah Toll, and I am the hub director for WTC in Northern Ireland. Um, put your hand up if you've heard of WTC. Woo! There's some of you that haven't. Um, WTC is a college that offers part-time, fully accredited degree pathways in study and theology. We've got church planting and leadership, student ministry, and kingdom theology. Um, and it's designed to fit around those of us that have a busy life. And um, so if you want to ask any more questions about um, studying with WTC, maybe you know that you want to study theology. Maybe you've been interested in studying theology, but you've never known how to make it work alongside your everyday, or you've never thought about it before, but after Freddie's seminar, you're like, oh, I'm interested in finding out a little bit more. There's a stand just in the registration area, and I will be about there, and I would absolutely love to chat to you. Uh, we also have an open evening on Tuesday, this Tuesday coming um, at 7.30 in Lisburn at Lagan Valley Vineyard. Um, but if you'd like to find out a wee bit more, um, that would be great. But um, I'm going to introduce Freddie. He's going to come on up here um, and is going to be sharing with us um, today. Do you want to come up? I'll pray for you. Is it all right if Freddie stays down there? Is that okay, Mike-wise? Come, cool. let me pray. Um, Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here. Thank you for Freddie. Uh, thank you for his voice and for his wisdom. And we just pray right now in our hearts that we will just be ready to receive, just even beyond what Freddie brings, but just what you are speaking in this room. Holy Spirit, we are attentive to what you're saying. Uh, will you be glorified and worshipped in this place? Amen. 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 Thank you. Great. So first things first, set the timer. I have to set timers these days because I stopped wearing a watch several years ago and then I stopped paying any attention to the time whatsoever and I just keep going. So it is so lovely to be uh, with you and I've uh, come, as Hannah said, from WTC, which is, as she said, a dispersed theology college. We work in partnership with local churches around the UK. We have a centre here in Northern Ireland and it is such a joy to be able to work in partnership with churches to put theology back in the churches and there has been a tendency over the course of generations for theology and theological reflection to find itself housed more either in the academy amongst academics where they, they're not necessarily trusted to handle questions of faith very well or very responsibly all the time, or uh, that we train our leaders in theology, but we don't, it doesn't expand beyond there. And at WTC, we are really committed to the idea that theology is a gift of God to the church and not to individuals within it, that we discover when we reflect theologically in the presence and power of the Spirit, we discover that theology and reflecting on God's Word and thinking carefully about His Word is a transformational experience. I am, um, am the Dean of Studies there, which means I oversee the academic programs, but I am also a Bible scholar and I teach Old Testament at WTC. And one of the questions that that means that I spend my life with is just asking, the, just of any page I can think of in the Old Testament, asking the question, why is this text here? And this is a great privilege that I have to be able to ask that question, why is this text here? And I'm going to spend a little bit of time this morning reading one passage that many, if not all of us, will know really well. Um, and we're just going to ask the question why it's here. And quite quickly, actually, we're going to reframe that question into a different question. 
Um, but we're going to start by asking the question why it's here. And the question that, uh, the passage that we're going to read is Genesis 1. And so we're going to be thinking through what this uh, says about how it introduces uh, God and what it says about uh, humanity as bearing his image. So, I'm going to read you Genesis 1. I know it's a text we know. I know it's quite a long text. Oh, thank you. But I'm going to read you Genesis 1 in full. And the question at this stage is, why is this text here? So, this is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate from the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on the earth that bear fruit with the seed in it, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the sky from the night. And let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser night, light to rule the night, and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, of every kind with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps upon the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So that is the passage of creation in Genesis 1, just spilling over a little bit into Genesis 2. And we ask the question, why is this passage here? And because that word why echoes very loudly, it can draw us sometimes to jump to conclusions very quickly because we just have an initial impression and we jump straight to the why. And it can be really insightful. It can be sometimes where some of the most inspiring revelation is to be found. It's also where all of our worst habits as readers are found. And we need to find ways sometimes of just slowing down slightly before jumping to the why, before making assumptions. And one way to do that is to ask that question, but to stress different words in the sentence a few times over. So instead of why is this text here, we can stress different words and draw out different ideas. So why don't we think about why is this text here? I don't know if this is something that you think about very often, this extraordinary um, dimension of God's word, that it is given to you in the form of writing, which means a few things. It means that God didn't choose to just download a sort of unchangeable, uninterpretable, fixed word into some bit of stone that can never be changed. It wasn't given... Uh, at the other end of the spectrum with kind of no sense of control whatsoever and it's just sort of passed down through rumour over the generations. It is spoken through people, but spoken specifically through writers. And writers wield all sorts of power because writers want to tell you something. They want to tell you what it is that God has inspired them to talk about, but they have a lot of control over how they tell that to you. They make decisions as writers as the best way of talking to you. And then, if that weren't enough power anyway that the writer has got, the writer then gives up all of that power anyway and gives it to you, the reader, and you have all the power now. Think of the stages of power that God has gone through giving up in order to communicate his word through the written word. So here's an example. You as the reader decide the tone of everyone's voice. And the tone of everyone's voice sometimes is the difference between the whole theological meaning of a passage. So, for example, oh, you of little faith. How does Jesus say that in your mind? Is he angry? Is he teasing them? Oh, you of little faith. It makes a huge difference as to what you think is going on. 
When the serpent speaks to the woman and says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You get to choose which word in the sentence that you stress, and which word you stress in the sentence really radically changes what's going on in that passage. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? That doesn't sound much like God. You might have misunderstood that. Did God really say to you that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I thought he said that to the man. Did God really say to you that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You see, the decision that you make as a reader changes subtly, but really importantly, how you feel temptation works, how you feel sin emerges in that text. God knows he's doing this. The writers who are writing the text know that they're giving you that power as a reader. God knows all the more that he's giving the writer and then you that power. And it creates, as we know, a lot of mess. Because we put those stresses in different places. We hear the tones of voice differently. But what it gains is a word that is at every step of the way relational. It is a word that is communicated through relationship through interacting with a person who then gets to write it down. It is a word that reaches the ears of the body of Christ through relationship. And we read it on our own, and we read it together, and we make decisions on our own, and we make decisions together, and we tease it out. And all the way through, it's like we engage with Scripture in the way that Jacob engaged with the presence of God at the river Jabbok in Genesis, when he would not let go, wrestling with God until he had received the blessing. And it is like we're invited to engage with God's word like that. And God is prepared to put up with the mess of it because the gain is so much greater. Because what he wants is relationship at every step. And so we have a text here in Genesis 1 that is a text that is written down through a writer writing this story in a certain way to point out particular details. And we're going to see one or two of those details, I'm sure, as we discuss this together. But we can stress other bits of the sentence. Why is this text here? Any thoughts on that? Why here? Why not elsewhere? Because it's the thing that happens first. So there's a narrative uh, force to it, right? So it's the thing that happens first, so it comes first. But of course, not all of the Bible is narrative. And in fact, as we'll look at in just a minute, this passage isn't narrative. It's not written to be narrative. It's uh, written out of a different style, but it forms a part of a biblical narrative. It's right at the beginning. But it's not the only account of creation. So that's interesting. So we only have to turn the page to find another account of creation. And it's quite similar in many ways, but it's quite different in other ways. And we can do a little bit of work to marry them up, but we have got to do a little bit of work. They don't just naturally knit up together for you. But you could go to Proverbs 8, and you'll find a completely different form of uh, creation narrative there, where you have a figure of wisdom participating uh, as a, an agent of creation and joining in with God in that work. And that later for the church becomes incredibly important because it's a part of how we understand Jesus' role. Pardon me. Part of how we understand Jesus' role in creation. It's an important theological stepping stone. You could read Job 40, which gives an extraordinary account of creation, which is defined mainly by creatures that you know nothing about. And some of which we do now know lots about, but others we know nothing about. 
Leviathan, for example. Depths of creation that are actually mostly speaking theological language to a world that thinks about creation in a certain way. But it's a completely different account of creation. So that now puts the stress on a different word. Why is this text here? Why did Job 40 not get put first? It tells you what happened first. It didn't get put first. Why didn't Genesis 2 get put first? And it is striking, this text, that when you start to think about, well, what makes this text unique? What are some of the decisions that might have led to this text being put first? It's striking that a few things stand out about this text that are um, really distinctive. What was the first thing I was going to mention? Yes, first thing is how it's written. So it is not written as a piece of narrative. Did you spot as I was reading it and as you have always read it, the way that it is written to be repeated, the way that it is patterned, not just organized into seven, but and there was, and, th and it was so, and there was morning, and there was evening, and God said, and it was good. Those patterns that come over and over again. And as you read it, and it may have become clearer even as I read it out loud to you, as you read it, it takes on a rhythm. And it has a rhythm that has a, a recognizable pattern to it, which means that you always remember the next thing that you're coming to. And what emerges is this is a story that was meant to be recited. And in fact, it was meant to be recited almost certainly at New Year. And the reason that we would think that is that every nation at New Year recites its creation stories. And Israel has found itself, at several points of its history, sitting in someone else's backyard, listening to those creation stories being uh, sung. Because they're not just recited, they're sung. And Genesis 1 is a song. I don't know if you ever think about it being a song, but it is poetry. And it has this pattern to it, and you were meant to sing it as a community together, and you sing it out to the world in glory of the God who made it. Well, that can already really radically change what we feel about how this, uh, how this text is coming together. But what's really interesting is that this text sits alongside loads of other texts that also look quite similar in some regards, quite strikingly different in others. And all these other nations that are singing their New Year songs at around the same time are singing a version of creation that has some uncomfortable points of similarity. So, for example, Israel spent a long time in Egypt. Egypt's creation story starts with the phrase, in the beginning. And in the beginning, Atum, the god who then is renamed later as Ra, uh, emerges from the waters, and the waters have a wind blowing over them. And that detail really matters because wind in Hebrew is ruach, and ruach is the word for spirit, and spirit is the word that is in Genesis 1 for the spirit hovering over the waters. So you start off with waters, and wind blows across the waters, and autumn emerges, and light is created, and then comes forth the land to split the waters, and then he puts the sun, and he, he is the sun, he puts the moon alongside him in the sky, and declares himself as the sun to be the image of God, and then out of joy, he weeps with joy, and he's a creative God, so out of his weeping comes forth humanity as the tears hit the ground. And humanity is this sort of cosmic accident that emerges from creation. Many centuries later, Israel spent a long time in exile in Babylon. And they have an actually a much more 
well-known creation story called Enuma Elish. And the Enuma Elish tells this story that is recorded on seven tablets. And it starts off kind of like a love story because it starts off with these two waters who are Apsu and Tiamat. And Tiamat is uh, the wife, Apsu the husband, and Tiamat is wild water and Apsu is fresh water. And these waters intermingle. And in the intermingling of their union come forth children. And as these children come forth, they are born into the midst of the waters. And these children are all gods themselves because we're living in a world here where this is the story of how all the gods, rather than one god, created, because that's what those other nations thought. And you have these children who grow up, and then they themselves have children, who in turn have children. And then it becomes a very human story, because those children make a heck of a lot of noise. And they never quieten up, and they never give their parents peace, and both of the parents start to lose their patience, and the father breaks first, and he sits his wife down, and he says, I'm going to kill these children. And it turns immediately from this romantic story into a family story, into a tragedy waiting to happen. And now there is real tension. And Tiamat, who had also been frustrated, her maternal instinct kicks in and she cannot bear the thought. And so she tips off her children and her grandchildren that this is going to happen. And they rise up against the father, Apsu, and kill him. And she, in response then, her... her uh, love for her husband is then ignited and she is enraged by what her children and grandchildren have done and she gets advice from her advisor Kingu who says you must go to war with them and this time she listens and she goes to war with them and she creates 11 monsters uh, who end up being sea monsters you may have heard a reference to sea monsters in Genesis 1 they, end, they create seven sea, 11 sea monsters to go to battle uh, with these other gods and these other gods are under real pressure, and at the point of defeat, one of them stands up, Marduk stands up and says, if I defeat Tiamat, will you all bow down to me? And they all agree, and he goes to war with Tiamat. He defeats Kingu in battle, and then he kills Tiamat with an arrow. And that arrow splits Tiamat in half. She is made of water. And her waters are separated. And he puts the waters along the ground to create the earth and the waters above to create the sort of overarching uh, waters over the universe. It creates sky in the middle. And he fills the sky with the sun and the moon to rule over the stars. He sets the stars to be signs and seasons. And then uh, he has, uh, brings forth the ground. And the ground brings forth vegetation. And he sets the gods to work to keep that vegetation in control. They're lazy. They don't want to do it. And so he agrees to create humanity to do the work of the gods as slaves. Now, you could listen to those stories and feel very uncomfortable about how similar they are to Genesis 1. And you might well think, and I'm sure you're familiar with the accusation, oh, well, Israel's just copying. It's just joining in with what everyone else did. But actually, what emerges when you think, why this text is the things it's changed. It's remarkable the things it doesn't change. It doesn't change the shape of the world. It doesn't change the sort of basic way the world came together. It changes two things. But those two things are of vital importance. And this, I think, is the reason why this text gets put first. Firstly, it corrects your theology about God. There is not 
many gods knocking around who are fickle and up to their own stuff and selfish and self-absorbed. There is one God, and that one God is in total sole control of creation and can be trusted because what he makes is good. That's the first thing. Second thing, you are no accident and you are no slave. You are called to bear the image of this creator. You can just imagine being in that world at that time and not worrying about questions about is this a literal text or is it not a literal text or is it you know, joining in with other ideas or is it leading the way. It's not, at the time, the readers probably weren't asking those questions, but they, would, they really would have noticed the way that a story that they've heard a hundred times has suddenly been completely retold with new theology, a new revelation about a God who is their God, who is sovereign over anything else anyone else might call God. And what comes forth is that this text is about what happens first, and this text is about setting up a story that unfolds, but it's actually doing something else at the same time. It is telling you the two things that you need to know more than anything else before you turn the page. This text comes first because it tells you the single most important thing that you need to know in your life, which is there is one God sovereign over all and he is good and he loves and rates you. That's what page one says. And to the whole world at the time, it's the only thing they could possibly have read from it. It is completely world-changing. But it invites you in then to ask the question, well, what is this God like? Because it invites you to know what God's like by watching what he does. So it's not a theological tract that says God does this and God is like this. It just, you watch him in action and you get to know him. And by the end of chapter one, nothing he does after that should ever surprise you if you've read chapter one closely enough. And we can read chapter one really closely. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time this afternoon. I had a timer over there. Plenty of time. We're going to spend some time reflecting on what God is like. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time at the end reflecting on what it means to us that God, that God, this God that we're now going to think about, declares you to be his image. And what does that mean? But let's begin with the question... So let's shift the question from why is the text here to who is God? And this is a question that you could ask of every single page you turn through the Bible. Who is the God you meet here? But this is the first time you meet him. Who is God? What is he like? What do you think? based on the page that we read. Powerful, really powerful. There is nothing in the whole of creation that is not totally within his control. Anything else? Sorry? Good, yes, thank you. He is good. Everything he creates is good. There is a... Um, a, a a little bit of tension that seems at some point to be introduced towards the end of the chapter that humanity is created to subdue the earth. And it sort of implies to a certain way of reading 
but this depends on where you put the stresses in the text, that there is something not good about the world. But actually, Genesis 1 is fundamentally clear about this. Every step of creation is good. Everything he does is good. He is good. Anything else? Ordered, yes. So this is a theme that actually we see from all of these stories of creation is that there is a world that was chaotic that is brought into order. And in all the other nations, the gods have to really strive at that and really sort of work their way hard at it. And in Genesis 1, what do we find? God is totally at ease with the order that he brings. And there are, there are words in here which you wouldn't see in English because you wouldn't have a way of seeing them in English, but there are words in here that are sort of little nudges to the world around Israel. So the word for deep, the deep is totally in control. The deep is the most chaotic thing in all of creation, these deep waters. This deep is totally under uh, sovereign control of God. The word for deep is tahom. That word is not in his, uh, a, a Hebrew word originally. It is a Babylonian word, and the word is tiamat. So it's borrowed that word, and you can sort of feel the text just having a bit of a prod at the world around. Oh, you think Tiamat is somehow involved in creation? No, she's not. Only God is involved in creation. You think Tiamat can cause any trouble? No, she can't. Look at Tiamat here. There is another word, which is uh, Tanin, which is the sea monsters that I read about. Some translations reduce that down to fish but it's a sea monster, and it's a sea monster whose sole job in life, in all the other creation stories around, is to destroy creation, and that's why the gods have got to work so hard at it. This sea monster in Genesis 1, totally under control, is no threat whatsoever to the order that God brings, because he is sovereign. Let's think just about the first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seven words in Hebrew. Oh, I said to my colleague Alistair at the back that I wasn't going to talk about sevens, but I've already broken that assurance. There are loads of sevens in Genesis 1, but I won't bore you with them. But, uh, but here are seven. There are seven words in the first sentence to talk about a, a creation account of seven days. It's, there is artistry in this, uh, in this chapter, which is really quite uh, captivating. But you have each of these words tells you something about God. In the beginning... Just from the, the word, in the beginning, in Hebrew, that's one word, in the beginning. What do you know about God? He was there. So maybe you need God as well, in fairness. Maybe you need those two words together. In the beginning, God was there. Now, scholars do debate a little bit about exactly how we should understand that. But essentially, God is there at the beginning. There is a sense in which he precedes time. He creates time. He is sovereign over time. Let's reflect on that for a moment. Let's shift from sort of um, trying to be analytical and being able to prove things to just meditating for a moment. What's the effect of time? We need a physicist in the room. What is the effect of time? Decay is a physicist's answer. Change is the friendlier word the rest of us use. But the effect of aging, of time, is aging, is decay, is change. God is not sovereign, uh, so is not subject to time, he is sovereign over time. What do you now know about God? He doesn't change. 
He is the same yesterday and today and forever. You know that one word in. Second word in is Elohim, God. There is a curiosity about this word. Again, you wouldn't see it in the English, but some of you might just know it because it's one of those kind of pub quiz Christian questions that you might just get a handle of. Does anyone happen to know what is odd about the word Elohim that would actually really upset us if we thought long and hard about it? It's a plural. It's a masculine plural word. Words that end in im are masculine plural words. Elohim is uh, gods. And indeed, it is used for gods in many other occasions in the Old Testament. It is so much so that at least one of the um, sort of sects that lives around the edges of, uh, of Christianity, and I'm going to say it's the Job's Witnesses, but that may be wrong, um, translates this verse as, in the beginning, the gods created. And so that seems to be joining in with the way that the rest of the world thinks. And that might cause us great consternation, except for the fact that Hebrew has certain rules that it never breaks. And the most important of all of the rules that it never breaks is that if a noun is going to be plural, then the verb that goes with it will be plural. All the, sentence, all the words in the sentence have to line up. And in this word, in this sentence, there is a verb, he created, and it is singular. And because it is singular, it means that whatever it looks like, Elohim must be singular. But it seems to be really pushing a point. Oh, you think there's loads of gods, do you? Well, actually, all those gods, one god. Really hammering home that point. One god. And yet that one god talks about themselves. Let us create. And it can draw us into thinking, well, where's that come from then? And there are two possibilities, one of which is a possibility uh, for us in this room more than it is in some other rooms. And that's the possibility of Trinity. We don't have to work very hard to find that. But you can understand that Jewish readers of this same text, which they also uh, delight in, would not see Trinity here. And so what they would see instead is royal language. And there is a lot of royal language in Genesis 1. And we are not the inventors of the royal we. That goes right back into the ages because the king or the queen over the nation represents everyone. And that's why they speak in the plural. And that has always been the case. So it might be a royal we, but it may well be that we're being told there is something inherently plural about God. Maybe. So we're digging into the nature of God, his oneness, but maybe there's an ambiguity about that. Maybe there's a, a community around that. And it would certainly make sense that God is communal. And if he's communal, it's very striking that when he creates things, he calls and waits for the response. He said, let there be light, and there was. It's a pattern that runs all the way through. And you find a God who is relational, who does all of his work relationally. He involves creation in his work. Here's a trick question for you. Who creates the plants? Now, given that I've told you it's a trick question, I'm assuming no one is going to answer and just jump into that trap. What's the trap I'm desperately hoping someone did jump into? Who creates the plants? God, right, except he doesn't. It's not like he's detached from it. It's all through the power of his voice. He says to the ground, you create the plants, and the ground brings forth the plants. God is working in relationship with his creation. And what he creates in the heavens and the earth is intricate and masterful and perfect. 
So you can read just the first sentence and know that God is eternal, that he is unchanging, that he is a creator, that he is powerful, that he is intricate, that he is careful. And you're one sentence in. And you can carry on reading through the chapter. Did anything else strike you as you read through? And this is just us reflecting together on the nature of God just from opening the page. Did anything else stand out? He speaks. And actually, this really, really matters. And in all the way through the Old Testament, the fact that God speaks really matters. And one of the reasons it matters is because we speak. And there is a, a theology that emerges in Israel that runs along the lines of a core part of being the image of God, and we're shifting into that question a little bit, a core part of being the image of God is that we bear the characteristics of God. We speak because he speaks. And they talk about it in terms of senses and bearing different senses. And we sort of casually, apparently humans have 21 senses because it includes things like temperature and balance and all that kind of stuff. But we casually talk about five, right? So Israel casually talks about seven, which is the same five that we have, which I always get wrong, but seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, and touching, I think. And then two more, neither of which you would think were senses, but Israel considered them senses, which are the ability to walk and the ability to talk. And so the fact that God speaks as the fundamental part of his nature and the fundamental part of the way that he releases his power really matters to your understanding of yourself as much as it does to your understanding of him. Let's just take a segue for a moment and go fast-forwarding through an awful lot of generations and land into the Gospels for a minute and think about how the Gospels speak about the human condition. And the most clear way that we see the human condition spoken of is through the language of healing. And all of the Gospel writers record that this is a major part of Jesus' ministry, is his healing ministry. And every now and again, and it's always in Mark, and thank goodness for Mark, you get a little coverall statement from Mark that runs along the lines of, Jesus healed everything. And thank goodness he said that, because almost all the things that we pray for on a Sunday are not the things that are listed out as the particular incidents that Jesus healed in the Gospels. And so those kind of, he did everything statements matter. But it makes you wonder, why did he point out the particular things? Why did Mark point out all the other ones in particular? Why did Luke point out particular healings? What did Jesus heal, according to the Gospel writers? He healed people's sight. He healed the deaf. He healed the mute. He healed the lame who couldn't walk. He healed the woman who could not be touched. What are the gospel writers doing? They're not trying to draw some distinction between people who are well and people who aren't. What they're doing is they're trying to give you something that culturally you will understand so that they can say something massive really quickly. And if you live in a world that understands that the sort of framework of humanity is built around these seven senses, then what you have is the gospel writers using that knowledge to say to you, when you encounter Jesus, it's like you're rehumanized. When you encounter Jesus, it's like you become his image all over again, renewed and restored. 
And it's not trying to say that person who doesn't have that sense is somehow inferior or is somehow not the image. That's not what it's doing. What it's doing is using a cultural language to tell you something massive, which is that when you encounter Christ, you are new creation. What do you think about the idea that God separates? This is one that I've been wrestling with a little bit recently, and this idea that God separates light from darkness. He separates the waters from the waters. He separates the stars from the rest of creation, and the sun and the moon from the stars. So you have this word separate that comes out over and over again. And in fact, the first, the the most troubling separation that you see is is a subtle one. And you might well say that I'll, I'll tell you it, and you may well say, I think you're overreading that. And I might be. This may be the power of the reader reading something. But let me ask you this. In the second day, well, let me back up and ask you a question before. There is a phrase that is used seven times in all these sevens in Genesis 1, which is, it was good. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And it builds up to a very good. And each day is good, right? Wrong. The second day is not good. It's not bad. It just isn't good. This is what it says. Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. No mention of good. Why no mention of good? The text is so careful about this. It's so careful about its patterns. It has to make up for the lack of a good here, because it needs seven, so it has to make up for them in the, se- in the next day to have two, squeeze two goods into the next day. So it's really deliberate about not having a good in the second day. Why is it not good? I am absolutely sure that the text is hoping that you're feeling disrupted by that and that you have to sort of, when you notice it, think, I don't know, and you've got to wrestle with it and think, well, why might this day not be good? And so here's my reading of it, but this may just be my reading, so you can ditch it and and then you just stuck with the problem. But it's, this is what I see. The presence of God is hovering over these waters. So right now, the whole of creation, and this is impossible to imagine, and in fact, Genesis 1 uses language that makes it possible to, impossible to imagine. It is formless and void, and yet it will use physical formed language to describe that to you. It's so that, what you, so that you just cannot unravel it. It is somehow the whole of creation, the universe and everything, all in one, is a swirling ball of water. And the presence of God is hovering over the water. And we might read that and read the closeness of God. The word that is used for hovering is used elsewhere in two contexts. One of mother birds nestling their young. And that intimacy and that that parenthood coming out. And the other is kicking the young out of the nest. Just as something as amazing is about to happen that the young doesn't know is about to happen. Which is that they're going to fly. So you have each of these things happening here in Genesis 1. God is setting something in motion that's about to be amazing, but creation doesn't know it yet. But also you have this closeness of God and this delight that he takes in his creation. He wants to be close to it. And then he separates those waters, water from water. And so you've got these waters swirling, and now those waters are separated. And where is the presence of God? 
This is my reading, and you may not go with it. This is my reading. Separated from the earth. And you might come to think of that as evidence for a God who wants to keep you at bay. And goodness, the world has found so many reasons to talk about a God who keeps you at bay. And that's how we think about holiness half the time. You can't come near God because he is holy and you will die. So keep your distance from God. But what's really fascinating about separation is that there is a dynamic to it, which is that you never stay separated. So the earth is separated and the waters are separated and the presence of God maybe here is separated. But later, on the fourth day, the stars are separated in order to create signs and seasons so that you have a way of recognizing God's patterns on the world, so that you have a way of recognizing his work in the world and his provision in the world and a way of thanking him for it. And thanking him for it in that world is worship. So it is bringing you back into worship. So one separation separates you from God. The second separation brings you back. And then you have that uh, separation is used elsewhere of things like the Holy of Holies is separated from the rest of the temple because that's where the presence of God is and that is dangerous. And yet then there is a priesthood who is set up precisely so that people can be brought into the presence of God. But we might say, but it's only the high priest or it's only the priests who are allowed to do that. And they are set apart from the rest of the people. But those people are called to be a priesthood in Exodus 19. They're all called to be priests. And it may not be fulfilled until the Holy Spirit comes, but that is the intention, is that we all live in the Holy of Holies. We all live in the presence of God. But it cannot happen without separation. And it is built into the fabric of creation that God separates so that he can draw you close. He holds you away so that he can draw you in. so that he can prepare the ground. Let's move on and think a little bit. We could carry on all day looking word by word by word through Genesis 1 to ask the question of what God is like, but this shifts our gear a little bit to think about what it means to be the image of that God. And the reason why I think that will become clear in just a second. Now, this chapter has been building up to the creation of humanity, and there have been little hints at it here and there, So some people uh, read the description of the sun and the moon and the moon reflecting the sun to be a kind of early allusion to what's going to come with humanity and humanity reflecting uh, God's presence over the world during a time of darkness, which would be magnificent because it would mean that it's not your job to come up with any of the light because it is just your job to reflect it. But the clearest sign that you have is on the sixth day when the animals are created and you have this extraordinary taxonomy of animals This is the worst zoo you've ever been to, where all the animals in Earth are described as cows, lions, and insects. Which doesn't make any sense at all, unless the only interest that you have in describing all the animals is in how they relate to humanity. They are either providers for you, they are threats to you, or they are irritants. And that's how it's described. Because that's the way that the world interacts with animals at the time. And it is preceding the coming of humanity. And then comes humanity and is born to be the image of God. And that phrase, image of God, is really pointed language. It's really deliberate language that means a whole world of stuff to that particular time that we've now lost because we now just sit behind this text and we're really familiar with this text. 
So here's a few things that the ancient world thinks about when it hears the phrase image of God. First thing, most important thing, it hears kingship. Every king that walks the face of the earth at this time bears the title image of God. You know the scene in Mark 12 where Jesus says, show me the coin when the Pharisees are trying to trick him about paying taxes. And he says, look at the image of the coin and look at the inscription. The inscription declares Caesar to be the image of God. So you have, and the great high priest. So you have this sort of wonderful little moment of Jesus saying, oh, oh, yeah, I guess guess you should probably give that to who you think the image of God and the great high priest is. I mean, it just puts them in an impossible position. So you have this, um, this association with kingship. You all are created to bear God's image. So who are you? Not a rhetorical question. Who are you? You're kings. And before anyone jumps at me and says, and queens, no, you're not. You're kings. Because you're dealing with a world at this time that sees a difference between those two things. And you shouldn't relegate yourself. You are all kings. And honestly, oh, I'm going to tell you a joke, by the way, and this is the only joke I know, and it's not funny. And it's not funny enough that I have to tell you it's a joke. But it is also serious. I have to be the bride of Christ. So the women can be kings if I can be a bride. That's not the joke. This is the joke. I promise you the crown looks better on you than the dress does on me. That was a kind laugh. You are kings. How do you know you are kings? Because God calls you to subdue the earth. And you might look through the rest of Scripture and do a word search for the word subdue and think, well, that doesn't sound really good to me because I only ever find examples of slavery or find examples of war. But that's because you're taking humanity's attempts at subduing as your prime example of how to do it. What a stupid idea that is. We suck at it. We are really terrible at subduing because our instinct is to subdue people. And that is fundamentally contrary to the idea that the whole of humanity is together shared the image that subdues the earth. It doesn't allow for people being subdued. So what we need to do is turn around our gaze and look back at the previous six days of creation and watch a God subduing creation. And there's your model for subduing. God's model for subduing is to see the potential of life and to draw it into its fullness. That's the job. But that is a job for a king. And you are called to represent God in this world as his king in his kingdom, where he is a king of kings. That king of kings status only makes sense if we all get behind the idea that we're kings. Second thing. If you were to do a study of the word image in the Old Testament, the word is selem, you would find some really uncomfortable places that you'd be led. So you would find that that word is usually used to translate the word idol. So it's usually used of idols in temples to other gods. And you know something about idols, which is they are forbidden. And that can be really uncomfortable, except that what you know about is false idols. That's what God opposes. So the question is, what does the world think an idol is? Well, an idol, as far as the whole world is concerned, is a form of a god that you shape, and they're thinking mostly out of stone or wood or metal. It's a form of a god that looks like the god, 
But then once you have commissioned it and committed it to, to worship, so that you will worship it, or that you will worship the God, that the God is expected to come and live inside that image. And it's not the same as being the God itself, and they understand that. So, but that's where the God is, so you worship it and you give offerings to it and you pray to it, because there's hardly any distinction. But that's what the world thinks. That's me being told by my phone to shut up. And I don't know how to stop it. There we go. Um, I think that's going to start beeping again in just a second, which will just be a reminder to really shut up. So, at the heart of the understanding of images is the idea that the God comes and lives inside the image. So now rework this. God has created you to bear his image and be his image in the world. He has created you specifically for the purposes of carrying his presence and not just representing him, but resonating him to the world. And that is how you subdue lovingly because you carry his presence. That is how you create the life that goes hand in hand with bearing the image of God, is that you create life wherever you go. And it's described in Genesis 1 in terms of multiply, and so it's described in terms, kind of biological terms there. But Jesus is the perfect image of God, and he has no children, so it isn't only biological. It is talking about giving the life of the kingdom and spreading it around. Because there is ultimately a commission here that is given to the whole of humanity and is therefore given to each one of us here to bear God's image and to remind the world that the world was called to bear God's image. It is fundamental to the human condition. And if we take anything from the gospel writers talking about healing in such a way that reminds you that Jesus is about recreating the image in humanity, it should be that you carry the commission to do that in the world. You carry the commission to be the healers. You carry the commission to be the image bearers who then restore the image in others. And it's always going to be God's voice that, does, that brings the power. It is always going to be Jesus' sovereignty that brings the authority. But he is a relational God who creates in tandem and relationship with his people. And so he commissions you to take part in what he does. And you can feel really, at that point, unqualified. And you are. And you can feel really clearly that you can't do that. And you can't. And there is no promise in the gospel that says, I'll just flick this switch and now you can. But that is not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works by him doing it, but you joining in. And you think of Moses when he meets God for the first time at the burning bush and God says, I have seen my people and I have heard their cry and I have remembered my covenant with them and I will come down and I will deliver them and I'd like you to bring them here. And Moses says, who am I? I can't do that. And God gently has to remind him, I will do that. What I need from you, Moses, is a shepherd who knows the way from Egypt to this mountain, who understands what it feels like to be in slavery, but now understands what it feels like to be identified primarily with my presence. 
And frankly, Moses, there's only one human being alive who that is now true of, and that's you. And I don't need your ability, and I don't need your wisdom, and I don't need your words. What I need is your yes. That's all I need. And if you'll say yes, I'll do it. If you don't say yes, I won't. Does he have your yes? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you alone are God. Thank you, Lord, that the pillars of creation rest on your shoulders and they are so secure in that place. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, that everything you do, everything you create, everything you call us to, everything you envision us about is good. Thank you, Lord, that you are good. Thank you, Lord, that you call us to know you, to hear your voice, to watch you at work, and to join in with your mission, to restore your image in all of humanity. Lord, we're sorry for where we broke it. We're sorry for where we continue to reflect you badly. But we are so delighted, Lord, that the cross has guaranteed the restoration of your image in your church and in this world. And Lord, we pray that we would be increasingly every day better image bearers for your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to take seriously that you have made us to be kings in your kingdom, but that you call us, Lord, to rule and subdue lovingly as you do. Help us, Lord, to engage with the idea that you have called us to create life wherever we go. Help us, Lord, to remember that that starts with an intimate communion with your presence within us. And Lord, help us never to leave your presence behind. And I pray, Lord, that as we engage with your presence, as we remember each day, Lord, that you live within us, that that would be the starting point at the beginning of each day of remembering, Lord, that you send us out to do the work that you have already set in place. The work that already has your yes, already has your blessing, and already has your power within it. Help us to serve you, Lord, willingly, lovingly, vulnerably, powerfully, and as witnesses in this world to your goodness and glory. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you. It's um, really wonderful to have just spent an hour just opening a page and saying, why is the page here? It's a really good page. It's the first page of a really good book. And um, it's such a delight to be able to just spend some time with you. I'm going to be around for the rest of the weekend, so do chat to me. Do chat to Hannah if you want to think about what it means to study this stuff in that kind of way. Um, but otherwise, bless you and have the, a wonderful rest of your weekend.